Well, good afternoon. We've begun a new series in the book of Acts. Last week we did an introduction to set the scene. So if you missed that, please uh, try, if you can, and listen online, as I think it will help you to uh, make sense of some of the background and what this book's all about. We entitled our series, Mission Unstoppable. Uh, The book of Acts is all about what Jesus, the God-man, is doing. He was on earth at one time, and he was doing things on earth, but now he is in heaven, and he is the supreme Lord, the King over all the earth. The fact that he is now in heaven means at least two things. Um, firstly it means that what he did while he was on earth actually worked which is good isn't it that means that we this afternoon have a powerful and successful saviour I think one of the things that really strikes me about the time when God sent Jesus into the world is the fact that um, Maybe we can get our heads on this. Both politically and religiously, people didn't want Jesus. Well, I came across a brilliant quote uh, here. God sent Jesus at a complex time where human evil was reaching a great height. And the quote says this, where the greatest human systems would reveal their greatest corruption. Rome with its much-vaunted system of justice, revealing itself rotten at its core. And Israel, with its celebrated temple and hierarchy, revealing itself hollow at its heart. And where this accumulated evil would blow itself out in one great act of unwarranted violence against a person who of all people had done nothing to deserve it. Isn't that profound? Jesus comes into the world and the state didn't want him and the religions of the day didn't want him and they both collaborated in doing away with him. Crucify him. In other words, the courts of this world gave a resounding vote of no confidence in Jesus. We don't want him. He's not good enough for us. But Jesus Christ conquered and overcame this world. He absorbed into himself all of the undeserved hatred, rebellion, and transformed it beautifully into a saving act. And the crucial thing is that he ascended to heaven where heaven's court, which matters far more than this world's court, overturned the verdict that this world had given and Jesus was crowned king he returned to heaven triumphant vindicated rewarded, exalted and glorified that means that this guilty and dysfunctional human race has not been abandoned by God but that Jesus Christ has saved us from ourselves from our sins And even from death and hell. Because of Jesus, God forgives our sins. He adopts us into his family. 
because Jesus came and died and rose again and ascended to heaven. So Jesus is in heaven now as king because what he did on earth was not a failure but a great success. But that's not the end of the story. That's only the beginning. Another reason why Jesus is in heaven is that from heaven he now directs his mission in the world. And the book of Acts is all about that. King Jesus in heaven is not just a great saviour, but also from heaven he is a great director. Jesus is the great project manager, the great initiator and driver behind a mission that encompasses the whole world. He's achieved salvation when he was on earth, and now he directs the proclamation of that salvation from heaven through his people. He came to achieve it, and now he directs the spreading of it. And that is God's mission unstoppable. So there's two good reasons why Jesus ascended to heaven. God is rescuing and saving people, building and growing his church in the world. So, we, we, we want to spend some time just walking through chapter 1 here and um, thinking about God's mission unstoppable. The first couple of chapters of Acts are very important, so we're going to think about chapter 1 uh, mainly this week. We've got Cafe Church next week, and then we'll think about chapter 2 the week after. Um, and we'll, we'll see what we can learn. You'll notice that... Um, at the end of verse 3, Luke talks about Jesus appearing to the apostles for 40 days. How many days are there in a week? Seven days in a week. And uh, so 40 days is how many weeks? Give or take? Six weeks. So it's like the school summer holiday from school. Just six weeks off school? Yep. So imagine the school summer holidays for six weeks thereabouts, last two days Jesus is appearing to his disciples, what an amazing six weeks that must have been, after the resurrection if ever there was a time that would have been the most awesome, scintillating time this was it, just think about the emotional roller coaster these guys have been on, at the beginning of this period they've seen Jesus suffer and die they saw him crucified they went home miserable and traumatised their beloved friend and saviour has been hung on a cross and left to die. And then they see him risen from the dead. Astonished. It, this kind of blows their world upside down. They've known unimaginable grief and then they've known incredible surprise and joy. And this, this six weeks must have been an amazing time, mustn't it, for Jesus to appear to them and talk with them so what's going on well I've got three simple headings and it's all about mission so we're going to think about the mission validated or authorised I can't think of a better word the mission defined and the mission empowered ok three simple headings so first of all the mission validated I don't know if you've ever been stopped by the police when you've been driving your car. Has that ever happened to you? I think it might have happened to me once. 
Why do you laugh when I say that? And when the policeman comes and, you know, he taps on the window and wires the window down, I think, you know, you, you don't say to the policeman, and by whose authority do you tap on my window? Because the police somehow have been invested, haven't they, by the laws of the land to protect us. And when a policeman asks you to do something, they have authority, don't they? Well, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the early church went out into their area to say and do things. And do you wonder whether people said to them, and by whose authority do you come and say these things? Their their mission needs authorising and validating, doesn't it? Well, I think one of the things about this 40-day or six-week period is that what Jesus is doing here is authorising and validating the mission of his people in his world. This 40 days is a time period that legitimises the apostles to go and do what he is sending them to do. What Jesus is doing here is, we, we might call it, if this was a business, we might call this succession planning. Jesus has been on earth and now he's handing over the great task of mission to his disciples. Have you ever wondered why it was 40 days? He could have done it over two years. Jesus could have stuck around for another hundred years. But he didn't. He, he, this fixed period of six weeks or so, Jesus rises from the dead and then he appears to his disciples to commission them and authorise them and validate their task. It's very important. Imagine if 20 years later someone in the community put their hand up and say, hey, hey, Jesus has appeared to me and he's told me some stuff to tell you all. Can you imagine if people were doing that? People did do that. There were all kinds of crackpots who dreamt of all sorts of strange things. God has told me to say this. But no, Jesus appeared to these men on and off over six weeks to tell them exactly what their task entailed and to authorise and validate them to do it. So if after ten years someone stood up and said, hey, Jesus has appeared to me and told me some stuff that you need to know, they could say, no, 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 hang on a minute, hang on a minute. Jesus has already authorised and validated his disciples to do that task. Who on earth are you? Jesus didn't mysteriously unfold this task to all sorts of different people all over the place. There's a foundation here that validates Christian mission in the world. Jesus establishes it and entrusts this task to these men. And I I want you to notice how Jesus is the great initiator. Look at what it says at the end of verse 2. Well, you have to read it all, don't you? It's a long sentence. In my former work, Theophilus, I wrote all about all about what Jesus began to do and to teach until the day was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. It is Jesus who handpicked these men to do a very special job for them. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men. He chose them. He taught them. And he sent them. 
And crucially, he also empowered them and energized them to do the task that he'd given them to do. It's all the intention and purpose of Jesus. They haven't dreamt this up. If anything, they were hiding in a locked room for fear of being crucified themselves. Jesus rises from the dead and appears to them and talks to them and sends them and commissions them and ultimately empowers them to go and do some very special things. Let's just uh, work through four quick things here. First of all, I I haven't got a click here, so I presume someone's doing this. He told them what to do. There you go. It says in verse 2 that he gave them instructions. What must that have been like? Hey guys, this is what I want you to do. I'm going back to my father. Let me give you some instructions. Did they take notes? I don't know. Jesus told them what to do. They weren't dreaming it up. He gave them instructions. Isn't it interesting as well that it says that Jesus, the Son of God, gave instructions to them through the Holy Spirit. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Given how prevalent the work of the Holy Spirit is in the book of Acts. Jesus himself gave them instructions through the Holy Spirit. Secondly, Luke tells us that Jesus proved to them beyond any shadow of a doubt that he was really and truly physically alive. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a hallucination. He wasn't a figment of their imagination. They'd seen him die. Luke says in verse 3, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. What does that entail? Many convincing proofs. Luke tells us that on one occasion he was eating with them. A ghost doesn't eat. Come on, let's go to Nando's. We'll have a chat there. What you have? Well, I'm a ghost. I can't have anything. No, it says he ate with them. At the end of Luke, it says, "Give me some fish." And he ate it with them to prove that he was really physically, bodily alive. Listen. You know, the fact of the resurrection is the foundation for Christianity. There's lots of religions in this world. Many of them are based on the teachings of founders who are long dead. You can go to their graves. You could go to their tombs. Christianity is the only religion, if you can call it that, in the world whose founder rose from the dead and commissioned his followers. Christianity is founded not on a dead leader from the past, but on a living and present Lord. Thirdly, Luke says, he explained something about God's plans to them. At the end of verse 3, it says he appeared to them over a period of 40 days or 6 weeks, and spoke about the kingdom of God. Guys, I want to talk to you about God's kingdom. Well, we're all ears. What do you want to explain to us, Lord? I want to talk to you about what God is doing in his world. I want to explain to you how all of that Old Testament history that you're steeped in has pointed to me. I want you to know what my Father in heaven is doing now because of what I've done on the cross. They discussed it. 
They spoke about it. They grappled with it. Can I just take some time to turn you back to Luke's first book? You'll know that Luke wrote Luke's gospel as well. That's why we call it Luke, helpfully. Just turn with me to the last page of Luke's gospel. Uh, it's page 1062 if you've got one of the church Bibles. At the end of Luke's Gospel, I, th- I think what Luke's doing at the end of Luke's Gospel is he's condensing that six weeks and giving a little summary of everything that went on in that six weeks. If you read the end of Luke's Gospel, it's a good, it goes well with Acts 1. So, verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you, the risen Christ. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why did doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see I have. It's me. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. This is what I wanted to get to. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. That's the Old Testament. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. What are they talking about? The kingdom of God. God's work in this world. And at the end of that section, the fourth thing, Jesus told them what to do. He proved he was alive. He explained God's plans. And he promised them power. Actually, here in Acts, he commands them to wait. Stay in the city. Wait for the gift my father promised. These six weeks must have blown their mind, mustn't they? I think verse 6 throbs with excitement in the light of all of that so when they met together they asked him Lord, Lord are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel now can you, can you get the sense of their excitement they're hearing this and imbibing all this stuff and they're thinking this is it Jesus has come God's going to restore the kingdom of Israel We're going to be, you're going to be the chancellor of the exchequer you're going to be the prime minister This is God's kingdom on earth. We're going to be part of it. This is what the Old Testament has been promising. Lord, is it now? Is it time? Are we going to be part of the winning team? What an excitement. I want to come back to verse 6 at the end. But I, I just want you to get a sense of how awesome these six weeks must have been. 40 days of Jesus talking to them about what he's planning. 
This is a mission that is authorized and validated and filled with content by Jesus himself. These men didn't dream this up. They went out and did what Jesus told them to do. Do you know one of the reasons you can believe the New Testament is because Jesus validated these apostles. This this isn't just a collection of random writings from people who felt like it. This 40 days, this validation and commissioning and sending means that you can whoops, you can stand on the New Testament. You can believe it. Why? Because it comes from Jesus. It's a God-breathed collection of writings and axes included in that. Hey, we need to be quick. So the mission validated or authorized, if you can think of a better word, put your own in there. Mission validated. They have authority. What about, secondly, the mission defined? Um, What does Jesus say to them? Well, they ask him, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel at this time? Are we going to be big players in this new kingdom? I said we'll come back to verse 6, we will, but Jesus says in verse 7, it's not for you to know times or dates, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. That's the mission defined. It's not complicated, is it? They don't need degrees in theology. They don't need to write some sort of complex uh, thesis or dissertation. Jesus said, I want you to be my witnesses. I want you to go and tell other people what you now know. I want you to go and proclaim. I don't want you to ask people's permission. Do you think Jesus would make a good king? (laughs) I want you to go and tell people that I am the king. Now, of course, some people are not going to like that. They did away with Jesus. (laughs) We don't want this man to reign over us. And these men are going to have great opposition. Some of them died for it. But Jesus says your task is very simple. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, was that a line in a famous film? Is you will be my witnesses. What is th- so that's the mission defined. What about the extent of that mission? These words must have been awesome. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah, we get that. And in Judea. Yeah, yeah, we get that. We live there. And Samaria. Hang on a minute. Samaria. They're half-breeds. They're not pure Jews. You want us to go to Samaria? Normally we walk round Samaria because we don't want to get the dust of Samaria on our feet. You want us to go to Samaria? Yeah, I want you to go to Samaria. And to the ends of the air. What? What? (laughs) We're Jews. (laughs) There's no hint here from Luke that they have a debate and discussion about this. But I don't want you to miss the fact that what Jesus is saying here is very radical. The extent of your mission is to be my witnesses to the very ends of the earth. Yes, even to Samaritans. Even to Romans. This verse, there's no contents page in Acts because they didn't have contents pages. But verse 8 is the contents of Acts. What happens in Acts 
is that the gospel moves from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the latter half of Acts, the, the gospel moves all the way around the Mediterranean to the end of the then known world. So that, this is the contents page for the book. Luke's very deliberately recording this for us. And, it, and there's movement here, isn't there? There's geography here. In, it's interesting. In, in Luke's gospel, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but grew up in Nazareth in Galilee, up in the north. I, I think Nazareth was a bit like Barnsley. I've said that to you before. He was up in the north. He had a northern accent. And what was it like when these rough fishermen went down to Jerusalem, where all the posh people were, all the people who'd been to school, and they started talking about religion and there's a movement in Luke from Galilee to Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem is God's city. That's the centre of all God's plans for his people. So they move from Galilee to Jerusalem. But then in the book of Acts, there's movement from Jerusalem to the very ends of the earth. There's a plan here. There's a mission here. Let me just apply this to us. What, what's this got to do with us now? I often wonder if we've taken a sting out of this and we get church all wrong and back to front. What happens is that we think that somehow the, the world will move towards the church. Maybe you've heard people pray. Maybe you've prayed, oh Lord, bring people in. I don't think that's what Jesus meant here. Jesus is sending them out, isn't he? You will be my witnesses. I don't want you to sit on your bums and pray for people to come in. I want you to go out and be my witnesses. If Jesus is a sending God, surely churches should be sending organisations. What are we doing when we meet here on a Sunday? Well, we come to worship our risen Saviour. But does this not inspire you to go out into the places where you live and work and be a witness for Christ? This should fill you so that you're inspired to go. Is that not the pattern here? I love the fact that right at the beginning of John's Gospel, Jesus said to the first disciples, they said, Lord, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and see. Come and see. What are the last words of Matthew? Go. Go and tell. And that's the pattern always with God, isn't it? Come and see. And when you've seen, I want you to go and tell. Is that not what Jesus is saying right here? This six weeks is all about that, isn't it? Here's my plans. Here's what I want you to do. I'll empower you to do it. I wonder whether we sometimes just dilute and make these commands of Jesus lame and meaningless. He said to them, it isn't for you to know the times or dates but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. Now go. Now to do this, we need strength and power and that's exactly what Jesus promises, isn't it? So mission validated, mission defined, mission empowered. I need to be quick. I want to say three things about the Holy Spirit. Um, first of all, I want you to not miss the fact that the Holy Spirit is promised by a loving Father. 
I think that sometimes we neglect that idea. What does Jesus say in verse 4? On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus, the Son, speaking about the Father that he admires and loves. And he says to his friends, Stay here and wait in Jerusalem, and wait for the gift my Father promised. Do you think about the Holy Spirit like that? The gift of a loving Father. What does um, Jesus say in verse 8? You, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. This is something that is given by a loving Father and received by loving children. You get that? So I remind you of any other words of Jesus. Just uh, flick back with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 11. Same author. I wonder whether Luke's connecting these two things. In Luke, chapter 11, Jesus is teaching the crowds about prayer. And he teaches them the Lord's Prayer. And then, in, in Luke, chapter 11, and verse 9, he says this, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. That's a great encouragement to us, isn't it? And then he says in verse 11, this is Jesus speaking, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? It's good logic, isn't it? What kind of a dad would that be? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, little passing <laughs> backhanded, so it's the opposite of a backhanded compliment, that, isn't it? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What is Jesus trying to communicate there? If you know how to be good dads, how much more of a good dad is God the Father? Can, can I encourage you today? This is not our main point, but I've been excited about this during the week. Let me encourage you to believe in the goodness of God. God is not nasty or stingy or malicious or cunning or manipulative. He is the very fountain of everything that's good. And G Jesus said, if you ask, you'll receive. He's generous. He's kind. If you ask him for a fish, he isn't going to give you a snake. And if you ask him for the Holy Spirit, he is glad to lavish his kindness on those who come to him. Let me encourage you to believe in the goodness of God. One of the greatest challenges we face as human beings is that we just mistrust God so much and we think he's stingy. He is the very fountain of goodness. But the terms Luke uses to describe the Holy Spirit are amazing. How do you describe the coming of the Holy Spirit? 
I think Luke's almost inventing language to talk about this. So the Holy Spirit, first of all, it's the promise of a loving Father. Secondly, uh, Luke talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit in terms of baptism. Uh, Well, Jesus says it, Luke records it. Verse 5, John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I love that picture. Today, on Facebook, I have some friends in Germany and they've been baptizing people this morning in a very cold river. And there were three people, I think, baptized, and they're all there shivering. One guy was stood in the river with his shorts on, with a scarf on. I was like, and they were baptizing people. There's something about baptism, you know, plunging someone into water, saturated, uh, drenched. John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. What a picture that is. Water, refreshing, cleansing, reviving, life-giving. You are going to not be plunged in water. You are going to be plunged in the Holy Spirit. You're going to be saturated with God. Can I say that reverently? I'm thinking of some other words of Jesus. In in John chapter 7, there's a great passage where Jesus talks about water. Do you remember it? Um, Jesus went to a feast. His brothers didn't want him to go. Well, they did want him to go, and he he, kind of went in secret. And it says in John chapter 7, On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, Let me find it so I don't misquote it. Um, on the last and greatest day of the feast Jesus stood and said in a loud voice if anyone is thirsty let him come to me and drink do you feel thirsty I I don't mean after you had a coffee do you feel so thirsty Jesus said if anyone did you hear that anyone is thirsty let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, streams of living water will flow from within him. That is a very odd turn of phrase. Not Jesus didn't say streams of living water will flow into him, but streams of living water will flow from within him. And John says in John 7:39, by this Jesus meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. When he ascended, he poured out the Spirit. And Jesus says to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, you're going to be baptized, you're going to be plunged into, you're going to be drenched with and saturated with the Holy Spirit. Streams of living water flowing from within them. Refreshing, life-giving, empowering the other third picture or third thing I wanted to say about the Holy Spirit we read in Luke chapter 24 if you can remember that verse 48 Jesus said to them you will be clothed with power from on high and what a great turn of phrase that is too not just baptised but clothed with power enveloped by it surrounded by it overshadowed by it 
it's very, I, don't, I don't want to steal Richie's thunder because I think he's going to do Acts chapter 2 in a couple of weeks but I don't know if you've ever seen this connection let me just show you something in, in John chapter 20 after the resurrection Jesus appeared to the disciples and he did something very odd John chapter 20 verse 22 you don't need to turn to it but it says Jesus breathed on them can you imagine someone doing that you're meeting together in a room and you ask everyone to stop and then you just go and you breathe on them what an odd thing to do and as he breathed on them he said to them receive the Holy Spirit very odd when you get to Acts chapter 2 when the day of Pentecost came they were all together in one place suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were what is, what's going to be in their mind immediately Jesus isn't in the room with us now going he's on his throne in heaven now going can you I can't act it out any better than that Jesus is kind of giving them a little picture receive the Holy Spirit and then he goes to his throne and what they hear is not a little the sound of a mighty wind clothed with power from on high from his very throne in glory he breathes his spirit into his people this is mission unstoppable a mission validated a mission defined and a mission empowered we're very nearly done what are the responses to that I think there are two in this passage um, from the disciples themselves that might help us to see what we do with this I said we get back to verse 6. First of all, verse 6. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Because we're really excited. It's going to be great. You're going to smash the Romans. We're going to be on the winning team. It's now, isn't it? What are they saying to Jesus? We want victory. We want no more humiliation and pain. We want to be triumphant. What we actually want is heaven on earth. Utopia. We don't want to fail. We want to be successful. They're getting a bit gung-ho. The kingdom's coming. And we're in it. very interesting that Jesus doesn't condemn them for the question he doesn't say to them that's the wrong question guys he doesn't say oh that's never going to happen what Jesus is concerned about is that they've got their timing out he doesn't say the kingdom will never be restored because Jesus knows the Old Testament and there are many promises that that will happen what Jesus says to them is it isn't for you to know the times and dates of when that's going to happen but you'll receive power from on high when the Holy Spirit comes and you're going to be my witnesses don't worry about them I want you to be my witnesses now they are speculating about end times I think they're speculating about their own prestige as well. 
And Jesus doesn't condemn them for any of that. The issue is timing. The future will be a complete restoration of God's kingdom, but not yet in the way they expect. We might say at this point that their response here in verse 6 goes too far. That, that if we can say it, they're expecting too much. They want to be all triumphant. There's triumphalism there. And Jesus kind of curbs that and reins it back in. We get that? What's really interesting is that they then go to the other extreme. Have we got that? The mission empowered? Here we go. Responses. Too much. That's the first response. Then they go to the other extreme. These angels at the end make me smile. This is comedy gold. After he said this, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were stood looking intently up into the sky. When two angels appeared to them and said, What are you doing? What are you doing? Looking up into the sky. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you've seen him go. So they've gone from too much now to too little. Jesus is gone. They stand there, rooted to the spot, paralyzed. Are we going to be sucked up through the clouds as well? Just wait five minutes. Maybe we'll go with them. They stand. In the first case, they wanted heaven on earth. Now, they're wondering whether earth is going to go to heaven. They're wistfully dreaming of heaven's blit. Where has he gone? Are we going to go as well? And these angels appear. He's gone, but he is coming back. You heard him. You're his witnesses. Go, stop daydreaming. Get on with it. Their response could be characterised, I think, as too little. Somehow Luke here manages to convey the two mistakes that we as Christian believers can often make. On the one hand, we can so easily become obsessed with times and dates and what we might call apocalyptic speculation. We want to be all gung-ho and triumphant and claim the world for Christ. We dream of being warriors in Jesus' army. We long for heaven on earth. If you've got that sort of personality, that might resonate with you. On the other hand, some of us might long to escape from earth and get to heaven's bliss as quick as possible. It's rubbish here, isn't it? If only we could escape. Some people want heaven to come to earth. Other people want to just disappear and escape to heaven. And both of those extremes seem to be here. Actually, heaven and earth are not set against each other in God's economy. There is, after all, a man, a real, physical, human man in heaven. What you can see and touch and taste is important. It is not the case in God's economy that the spiritual is good and the physical is bad. Heaven is not a place of disembodied bliss. The physical realm is important and good. The problem is, it's broken. And one day, in God's economy, it will be fixed and restored and brought to its former 
wonderful glory. One day there will be no more crying or pain or death or decay or disease or cancer or tragedy. No more pain or sorrow. But not yet. It will come. Things will not remain broken forever. Is this not our hope? For now, we often groan under the brokenness. We live in a time when God's kingdom has come, but it's not fully consummated yet. Do you know, I I think part of this is the patience of Jesus as a gentle king in giving a rebellious world time to repent and make its peace with him. No, Jesus didn't condemn their question about restoration of kingdoms and triumph because it was a good question. But they weren't to speculate on things that would happen one day in the future. Their task was to be witnesses now. I think my point is that we don't want to be triumphalistic on the one hand, but neither do we want to be paralyzed on the other. We don't want to be gung-ho, but neither do we want to do nothing. So what did they do? What's the right answer to the implied question I'm asking? Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room they were saying. Those present were the apostles. He names them. Verse 14. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. What did they do? They met together to worship and to pray to their risen Savior. In that kind of now, but not yet, they met together. They prayed. What did they pray? What were they praying? Lord, protect us. Lord, send us what your Father has promised. Lord, help us to be good witnesses. Oh, Lord, come back soon. This is a church, isn't it? A group of people who love Jesus and who love one another. They made decisions too. We haven't got time to get into all. They replaced the traitor Judas. But see how they sought God's will together. They had leaders. They worked things out using the Bible as their guard. Do you see? how utterly glorious it is when God's people meet together. When we meet together, King Jesus is directing and guiding his church. He's working through us, inspiring us, empowering us. This very series we're doing is not just a nice idea that me and Rich dreamt up. This is something that Jesus wants his people here to know and be aware of. Does that change the way you come to church to think, I'm going to church today because King Jesus wants to teach me something? What an amazing change that would make to our attitudes. 
So Jesus, first of all, authorizes their mission. He defines the extent of their mission and he empowers them with the Holy Spirit to fuel their mission. Their lives were just as fragile as ours are. They faced great problems and difficulties. They were persecuted from the outside. They often failed on the inside. But the exalted and reigning King Jesus is leading and guiding his church. Will you follow Jesus? Will you love one another? And will you be his witnesses even here in Rotherham? Are you up for it? Are you up for it? <laughs> well, I pray that we are. Oh, man.